It's always wise to pray, so let's do so. Father, please bless our time in the Word and illuminate it to our understanding. We thank you, God, for your Spirit that indwells us and leads us into all truth and convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Helps us to understand, Father, the profound things that reveal who you are. So please bless this time. May it be for your glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. If you notice, we've got uh, on the front, foundational framework. We're 31 sermons into this. You guys have been champions. We should have had like some sort of, like you win a bunch of cookies or something. If you've been here by the time we get done with the Old Testament, it'll be good. Um, but just so if you're not aware, we've been going something called doing foundational framework. And the idea is, is you can't understand the New Testament until you get the basic tenets of what is explained and unfolded about God in the Old Testament. Or let me say it another way that might be more easily comprehensible. Until we know who God is, until we know what man is, and until we know what sin is, we cannot begin to comprehend the God-man who takes away sin. That's probably an easier way to understand it. So everything we are doing is setting a pathway leading to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not there yet, and I know that some of you have been wearing out your knees in your prayer closets wanting me to get to the New Testament, but I promise you, this is foundational and good stuff we need to know. So, just to get everybody up to speed quickly, here are five things that we've covered so far, and you'll notice them at the top. Foundational truths. Number one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. I read an article online by a scholar that was trying to tell me that the Bible was everything else but that, so I replied to him. And I said, the Bible is God's self-revelation. I haven't heard back yet, but I hope I do. This is the way that God chooses to reveal himself. Yes, he does so through nature. He does so in the creation of how we're made up. I mean, remember, when he fashioned Adam, he understood that one day his son would have to encase this likeness and we are made in the image and likeness of him. But as far as wanting to get it across crystal clear, so that it leaves us with no questions, thoroughly communicating everything that he wants you and me to know, he decided of all of the things to do to put it profoundly in a book. And we can talk more about that, and if you're curious about digging into that, we're going to be doing a class called Hermeneutics in September. We're going to dig all into it. The second one, God is the eternal, always has been, is now, and always will be. He has no beginning or end. He is always. He is the sovereign creator. He has the right to rule. He has the right to govern. He has the right to set the course for history. All that he creates is good. Everything that he makes is consistent with his character. Anything that he does is not apart from his goodness. It cannot be, otherwise he would cease to be who he is. The third one, we, usins, y'all, are responsible agents held to a moral standard. Now, who sets the standard? God sets the standard. And it is our responsibility to answer to the standard. That's why whenever sometimes you hear somebody talk about salvation and they talk about the free pardon of salvation. Everybody heard the free pardon of salvation before? We're talking about the free pardon. Why? Because you're guilty. That's why. Because there is a standard that we are held to, that we are required to meet. And you either meet it trying to pull out the lint in our pockets of life and stack it up so that somehow it will merit righteousness, or we simply claim the blood of Christ as the pardon of why we should be accepted. There are no other answers or alternatives. One damns, the other one saves. It's very clear. The fourth one, sin does not originate with God. I don't care how many smart people tell us this. Sin originates within. You were a beautiful cherub until unrighteousness was found within you. That's where it happened. Cain, sin is waiting at the door. And its desire is for you. You must overcome it. It has the tendency to want to rise up and get you. And God is saying, no, whatever it takes, don't go that direction. Don't sin. Don't do it. 
So the idea of sin is not in cohesion with God. It is a disruption in the full plan of perfection. And that is so important that we get that. It's the problem that has to be dealt with and only God can deal with it. So notice it separates us from God. Again, when we speak of death, we speak of separation. The fifth one, God declares someone righteous by faith alone. And alone means by itself, nothing else added to it, either before or after. By itself, apart from any works whatsoever. Abraham believed God. He heard what God said. He had a conviction that it was true. And then God turns around and declares him righteous in his sight. So those are the five foundational things that we have seen up until this point. So now I want you to pull out, if you've got this, you look down at the next part. We're dealing with two topics today. It all encompasses one big idea, but it's two facets of it. And the first one is salvation. This is a word that is terribly abused in the church today especially. Salvation does not mean when you read it all the time, go to heaven when you die. It does not. In fact, overwhelmingly in the Old Testament, you would be hard-pressed to find that meaning out of it. And so I've got some documentation for you in this. But if you're one of those nerdy people, and I can tell because you're the person who brought the pen, not that needed the pen, right? That's how you tell that. You can go home with a concordance and look up the word salvation and saved and go through every reference. And the question you always want to ask yourself is, saved from what? You determine that from the context, and next thing you know, you've got a full-blown Bible study going on, and the Lord is growing you leaps and bounds. You become immediately discerning, and here's what you'll find. If we just follow what the Bible tells us about salvation, it always, always, always keeps works away from justification every time. The Bible makes no mistake. So I want to read this. I thought it was a good summation of what we looked at. Egypt was one of the most advanced versions of the pagan kingdom of man. It offered rebellious man a home of his own making in God's creation. Man appeared to have freedom to live in perfect security. That's what it appears to be. Now remember what we know from Romans 1. Truth is always suppressed or covered up by unrighteousness. So it appears I'm living free. In fact, the whole idea, and and I'm not knocking anybody if they subscribe to this, but I want you to just think about the words we use. When you hear the word liberal, about whatever it is, he applies the lotion liberally. That kind of idea, right? Whatever it is, that means that you got a whole lot of it. You had the freedom to use a bunch, right? It seems to have a much wider field that you can romp in, is the idea. But what you actually find out, the next sentence, in reality, the apparent freedom pagan man enjoys is what? Slavery. And ultimately, regardless if someone subscribes to the Bible or God or accepts it as true or not, we know slavery ultimately to what? Sin. Remember, sin's the problem. It's ultimately a slavery to sin. And it doesn't always have to be a slavery of sin in action. A lot of times it's sin is slavery in mind. It's just how I'm thinking is messed up about the situation. So notice, apparent freedom pagan man enjoys is slavery, slavery to his counterfeit of the kingdom of God. In other words, a world of unrighteousness, that's the idea. So now let's turn to Exodus 14. We've had the application of the blood on the doorposts. The angel of death has passed over. The firstborn of Egypt have been struck down. There is great sorrow all throughout the nation of Egypt. There's not a house of the Egyptians where someone is not dead. Anything left, cattle, animals, doesn't matter. Death is everywhere. It's a sad situation. The people of Egypt and Pharaoh then drive the Israelites out. Get up and get out. We don't want to suffer anymore. 
So they leave and they get down the path a little ways. And Pharaoh comes to his senses and says, hold it. We just fired our entire workforce. Who's going to work now? Come to find out, Pharaoh's not going to plant any seeds or build any temples or anything like that, right? So we're going to go after him. So you're probably familiar with the story or you've seen the movie, right? Aren't you glad Cecil DeMille was back that long ago in order to film all that for us? It's good. Poor Charlton Heston. Anyway, but in doing that, they chase him down. And God actually, instead of leading them up towards the land that he had promised to them, leads them into a situation where you've got a body of water on one side and you have a lot of angry Egyptians charging you at another side. So in his mercy, what he does, he said, well, there's nowhere to go here. The pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night comes over and rests on this side and creates great confusion as to where the Egyptians could not charge any further. Now, the reaction is interesting. Chapter 14, verse 11. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Now, why do we giggle at that? Now, don't act self, if I was an Israelite, I wouldn't have said that. We'd like to do that with Peter all the time. Don't act like that. Don't be that Christian. Why do we laugh at that? We would do the same. That's probably what it is. We're laughing because that's me. How did I get in there? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Is that true? Is it true that these people would have been better off in perpetual servitude to a pagan nation rather than the mighty hand of God striking down the world's superpower and leading them to a place of freedom. Is that correct thinking? No, it's a comment. Let's see if you can get this. It's a comment made out of what? Well, it's fear. Who said it? Unbelief. Unbelief. Yes, I've seen God ten times do things that messed Pharaoh up something awful. But now that I'm sitting here and I'm looking at, okay, drown, death, it's not looking good. And aren't we like this? When we get in a situation where we're like, okay, I don't see any way out of this. And so what I'm going to do is the only God-fearing thing I know to do, and that's complain. That's usually when you fire up the prayer line, right? You got to get on the phone to somebody. You ever seen those Facebook statuses that you know as soon as you start reading, it's really a hook to try to get you? One of the most godly things I ever did was get rid of my Facebook, I tell you. Girl, you will not believe what I'm going through. You're right, pray. (laughs) Shut it. Done. But let me ask you this, is God bigger than every situation that we see? Oh man, let's not miss it. Let's not miss the greatness of the Lord. What, he was great in Egypt, but he's not great here? That says a lot about his omnipresence, doesn't it? We don't truly believe that God was able to follow. Well, wait a second, pillar of cloud, fire? I mean, how do we not get this? But isn't that how life works? When breathing starts to get hard, when sweat starts to pour out, when we're sitting here going, oh, I'm in a panic now, what do I do? The whole idea of who God is flies out the window and it's not the first option that we go to i guarantee you the bible wants to correct that in my life and in your life the bible wants to say do not lose hope in the fact that god is always your first option and your only option the only option that you have so how does this go forward verse 13 but moses said to the people do not what because that's a problem Everybody get your emotions in check. Don't let your emotions get in the driver's seat and drive you off the cliff. Let's focus on facts instead of feelings is the idea. Have I gone over the F train with you guys yet? Okay, we're going to do a Sunday on the F train. You guys will like that. Let me give you a brief synopsis. Uh, What is it? Uh, Engine, boxcar, 
caboose. Facts, faith, feelings. Your train will only go forward if facts are leading the way. The car that has to come after it is faith in those facts. And then if you have faith in those facts, it will dictate what feelings you have. The problem is, is we try to go everywhere with the caboose up front. That makes no sense. It makes no sense. In fact, it creates great friction in any of the facts taking place as reality in our life moving forward because something that shouldn't be there is blocking the way. The very first thing he's saying, do not fear, put the caboose in the back. Let the facts run this thing forward. So notice what he says, do not fear, stand by. I love that because that's almost like get yourself out of the situation. Stand by, stand over here. Stand by and see the what? Oh, that sounded like a church that didn't have coffee this morning. Come on. This is a great word. Stand by and see what? The salvation of who? No. What's his name? Yahweh. The self-existing one. That I don't need anybody else to do what I do one. The I am is what he's saying here. Moses said, Don't let your emotions get you. Stand to the side and watch. God, Yahweh, is going to save you. Now, what's interesting about this, and I'm sure Pastor Steve can correct my pronunciation, but the word here in Hebrew is Yeshua, which in the New Testament is the name for Jesus. The Lord saves. Salvation is of Yahweh, is the idea. So notice, the Lord's going to save you. Now, are the Israelites in danger of hell? That's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a real-life, physical, threatening situation where enemies are looking to take no prisoners. So watch. The salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again. Now, verse 14, mm, it's like the butter off a of cornbread. It is. Yahweh will fight for you while you keep silent. What's that? Standing by. Out of the way with mouths shut. Boy, that doesn't sound like the church, does it? Notice, don't send out prayer requests on this. Don't get everybody on the line. Start. I mean, we say it's prayer, it's gossip, let's be honest. But no. Stop. Don't say a word. Watch what God can do. Verse 15. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? It makes no sense. Tell the sons of Israel to go what? Forward. Pause for a second. Does God know what's going on over here? I don't mean Tom. (laughs) Does God know what's going on over here? I've got water, and you want me to go forward. Correct, correct my theology, Jesus, or God, but I'm not to where Jesus is walking on water yet. So that's not where, I don't, I don't have that foundational truth in my memory banks as being an Old Testament Israelite who's just been set free from slavery. So you want me to keep walking where there is no way. Isn't that just like God? You don't see it. Go. It's not about that you have to have the sidewalk laid before you. It's that you're moving your foot forward to walk and then watch me place it as your foot touches the ground. That's what he wants. Why? Because that is faith. Faith is not some blind act where you just hope that your foot lands and you've got a blindfold. It's ridiculous to hear how some people talk about blind faith today. All faith has got credibility because it's based on the inerrancy of God's word. He speaks truth or he doesn't speak at all. So moving forward, when he says, don't talk to me about it, go. I told you guys to go forward. This is what needs to happen. Now watch what happens. As for you, verse 16, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored. Everybody see that word honored? Here are the possible definitions of that word to be heavy, weighty, grievous. The idea of being rich or honorable or glorious. In fact, it's one of the variations of the word that we see throughout this Exodus experience 
as the word for hardened when we talk about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It has the idea of bringing honor because it is massive. Again, that study, please do it. It's important. We talked about it last week. So it says here, I'll be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will what? Know that I am who? Yahweh. Hasn't that been his purpose the entire time? Wasn't the first thing that Pharaoh said was, wait a second. I know all these gods. I'm a god. But I don't know who Yahweh is. Why would I want to do anything he says? And why would I want to let these people go? Life is just too good to be listening to anything you have to say. He's obviously nobody because he's not even in the pantheon of everybody that we worship here. God gets the point across. In this one act, can you imagine whoever went back and said, hey, uh, Pharaoh's not coming back. Can you imagine when, when everybody got that report back in Egypt? In fact, if you remember this, I told you about this last week, but if you check through the scriptures, Egypt is not even mentioned again until the reign of Solomon. That's a massive amount of time that goes by just to rebuild Egypt so that it would have some sort of name for itself amongst the nations. Incredible. So it says here, verse 18, then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I am honored through Pharaoh and through his chariots and his horsemen. So they follow in, children of Israel, an excess of a million people at this time. They make it through. Then the Lord closes the water over Pharaoh and his army, and they're washed away. Now, if you get online, you go to Google Images, and you type in Exodus chariot wheels, you can actually find underwater photography that's been taken of wheels that are resting on the bottom of that sea on the floor right now. And it's been there for so long that coral reefs have been able to uh, spread up around it. But you can see it as plain as day as what's happened. And what's amazing is, is if you look at it, it's all in a line. It's not here, here, here. Nope. It happened. Sunk immediately. Done. So there's evidence for that. Thank the Lord we haven't dug it up because we would probably have the tendency to worship it. That's usually how people work. But look over verse 30. Thus the Lord, what? Saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which Yahweh used against the Egyptians, the people feared Yahweh and they, what? Believed in Yahweh and in his servant, Moses. The use of this word, if you would pull out your notes, look down at the bottom there. In crossing the Red Sea, the Israelites are saved, delivered from the crucible of Egypt. Salvation means deliverance. Deliverance from what needs to be the question as we ask when speaking of salvation. The Hebrew word yasa means be saved, or yasa, however you want to say that. Be saved, be delivered, save, delivered, give, victory, help, be safe, take vengeance, preserve. A verb which is first found in this verse. Anytime that you're reading about this word saved, you need to find out what the context is. Now here's the amazing thing about it. They all decide they're going to get into the mode of worship. Overseeing this amazing victory that the Lord has delivered to them. And so I want to give you two things, and then we're going to walk through this text and talk about it. If you look there under worship, the idea, you don't have to turn there in your Bible. What I want you to actually to do is pull out this extra sheet I gave you, because this is what we're going to work from today. And on your handout here, true biblical worship contains two and only two elements. If there's something that encases what we can tend to think, you know, a worship song that we hear on the radio or whatever, that does not fall in these two categories, I encourage you to get rid of it. Because the Bible is very clear about what is pleasing to God in worship. All else that would be brought into worship of God does not have biblical validity. Number one, who God is. Anytime that we are singing, something has happened in our lives and we want to say thank you, God, we want to praise Him, the contents of what that needs to look like needs to have a focus of who God is. 
This will usually show something like how he's demonstrated his strength. It'll have something to do to praise him for the attributes that he has. Something about the excellence of his way or his plan or the knowledge that he has of a situation. The whole thing we're always going to ask is going to be in present tense. Why? Because it speaks to his immutable, his unchanging character. God never changes. He always is who he is maximally all the time now. Does that make sense? And so we're always talking about who God is. The second facet of worship, you can look at your papers or up on the screen, what God has done or will do. In other words, the actions that he's performed or what we've seen, how we've seen him go through our lives and change things, situations. What if we were to stop everything right now and say, you know what, we're not going to have Sunday school today. Instead, let's go around the room and talk about what God's doing in everybody's lives. Could you find reasons to worship him? Could you sit here and say, Oh, this is who God is, and here how, here's how he's affected my life. Here's how his word has been changing my mind and my heart. Here's how I've been growing. I had this situation, and it looked impossible. I was facing this sea. Next thing you know, he opens up a path, as only he can do. Is God doing enough in our lives to praise him, or would we be largely silent? think that's important to ponder this includes such things as creation his covenants his deliverance and the blessing of his people his provision in difficult times his promises and the excellence of his plan for history the reason why it is a what he has done or what he will do is because of the vital role that prophecy plays in the scriptures i'm so tired of all these famous christians downplaying biblical prophecy like it doesn't matter now It matters a whole lot because it's the only way you can measure the trustworthiness of God because he always does exactly what he says he will do. So the idea here, worship can look at both his past accomplishments and his future fulfillment of his promises. So let's do a little exercise. Everybody needs one of those sheets. Everybody needs a pen. And we're going to go through this. See how our little paper looks up here. It'll look good. Zoom it in some. Whoa, here we go. Hope you didn't eat before you came. That'll make you sick. There we go. Can everybody see that pretty well? Yeah, let's just zoom on in there. There we go. Now, if I get crazy writing, just tell me to calm down and back up, all right? If anybody's caboose leads the train a lot, it's me. So now here's what we have. We have Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 19. And I pulled it from the New King James Version just because it's something different than what we're probably commonly using here in the New American Standard Version. Never hurts to work in a different translation. Might show you some things, and then you can go back and compare how they chose to translate certain words or concepts in order to have better study. But the two things that we're concerned about looking for is, number one, what has God done or will do? And number two, who is he? Because Moses is getting ready to sing a song. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see my enemies overcoming a sea and I don't ever have to deal with them again, I want to sing. Do you want to sing? In fact, notice, notice this. Reflecting upon the greatness of what God does is supposed to motivate us to song. It's godly. It pleases him. To take time out and say, Lord, let's just stop everything and say thank you. Thank you. Anybody else excited about June coming? The month of June. Some of you started to get that. That's good. I'm not talking about summer. Just a joke. So notice, then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. To who? Oh, come on, man. Yahweh, yeah. That's how he revealed himself. Let's write that in. Here's how you write it in. Y-H-W-H. And spoke saying, I will sing to? Amen. I will sing to Yahweh. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider, he is thrown into the sea. Pause for a second. Is that talking about who God is or what God's done? What God's done. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a little bracket here. What? 
I'm just going to go ahead and throw that in there because it's fun. What Yahweh has done. Everybody see that? Right? All God's people said amen. Notice, the Lord is the focus of where I'm singing. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider, he has thrown into the sea. Everything that threatened my life, he dealt with in a second. Done. No worry anymore. He saved us. How about verse 2? The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. What's that? That's who he is, exactly. Don't be shy, come on. Who Yahweh is. And another exclamation point. God only gets exclamation points, right? That's all he gets. No periods for him. He gets the best. So notice that. And notice the contents of it. He's my strength and my song. He's the reason why I sing, and he's the reason why I've got anything left to give. Everybody see that? Notice here. He has become my what? Salvation. Are we talking about going to heaven when you die? Talking about being not going to hell? No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about when my life was threatened and when death was certain, he stepped in and rescued me. He delivered me. He got me out of harm's way. He set me in the clear is the idea. He is my what? Bless you. He is my what? No, not Yahweh. No, what is God? El Elohim. Notice that. He is my Elohim. Now, this is really interesting because when God said, these are my people, and I'm going to go in and deliver them because they are mine. They are my firstborn son. Remember when God was laying claim to them? And before they were like, leave me alone. Go away, Moses. Work just became hard. Now what are they saying? Yeah, we're yours. And guess what? You're mine. There's nothing wrong with that. Everybody see the increase of intimacy in this situation? You are my God out of all the gods that we could worship. But if you check, I think it's Ezekiel chapter 20, you will find out that the Israelites actually became heavily threaded in this pagan idolatry that Egypt was part of. He reflects and gives a comment on it. Notice, no, no, no. Yahweh is my Elohim and I will praise him. He's my father's Elohim. Is that true? I mean, wasn't that the whole basis for why Moses came? When I say who's, who, who's sending me, what should I say? I am who I am. I am the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The very progenitors of this entire race of people. That's where it comes to. And why was that important? Because immediately the promises of God in the Abrahamic covenant come to their mind. Oh, wait a second. This is the God who not only created everything, but guaranteed that we would be delivered into a luscious land that would be ours as an inheritance, not based on whether or not we did good or bad. That's his promise unconditionally to us. So we would read this here and we kind of skim over it and just whatever. Uh, our English American mindsets would not grasp the, the Jewishness that's going on here. But all these things start going off in their minds. Now notice verse 3, the Lord, and notice how is is in the italics there. Everybody see that? That actually means it was supplied to give greater clarity. I kind of wish they wouldn't have done that and just put a comma. Yahweh, a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Everybody see why it's important? And when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that wouldn't make any sense. It was just like, the Lord is his name. Okay, whatever. No, no, no. Yahweh is his name. Self-existing one needing nothing to do what he does. He is not reliant on anyone. It's what we call the aseity of God. Notice that. Lord's his name. Now, right there, what is that? Who he is. Who? Yahweh is. Now, I'm scared, church, that you guys are just going to give Yahweh his every answer to every question I, I ask, okay? So, so listen, okay? So notice the next part. Pharaoh's chariots and his army is cast into the sea. His chosen captains, his choice captains is the idea there if you do research on that word chosen it actually means the cream of the crop the best officers that he had to offer is what they're talking about also are drowned in the red sea the depths have covered them and they sank to the bottom like a stone what is that 
<laughs> Yahweh. No. What is that? What he's done, exactly. What he's done. What Yahweh has done. And he always gets exclamation points, right? So notice that. What he has done. The next part here. Now, now let's, let's, let's deal with verse 5 real quick. The depths have covered them, and they sank to the bottom like a stone. If we had to be honest, this is a little morbid, isn't it? It's like, yay, people died. But isn't that really what happened? Were these people evil? Were these people asking for judgment? Did these people worship everything else but Yahweh even after Yahweh revealed himself? Did these people have no regard for the repeated requests that Yahweh brought to the table? You see what I'm saying? The Egyptians weren't looking for redemption. They were looking to be right and essentially had an attitude of, you know what, Yahweh can go to hell as far as we're concerned. Oh, that's abrasive. It is abrasive. Because that's how pagans think about the God who created everything. They are in direct opposition to everything that is true and right, full of lies, deceit, desiring to have whatever truth would come their way, cover it up. You ever try to tell somebody the truth and immediately they started squirming like somebody put ants in their pants? How does truth have that kind of effect on somebody just by what you're saying? It disarms them, and they cannot function. Why? Only for one reason. Because it's true. That's the only reason. It is truth laid out in front of them, and now you have to deal with it. You ever had somebody argue their way out of you trying to present the gospel to them? You ever, I, I tried one time. Hey, I've got, I've got something here in a tract I want to share with you. Oh, no, 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 no. That guy got out of the car and ran. It's just Jesus. I mean, if he's not real, and if there's not really a God that you're answerable to, and there is no moral standard, and you can just do whatever you want to, and you're kind of the God of your own existence, then why are you running away from me? Everybody see that? Truth wins out. Is it wrong for us to sit here and, and glory in the fact that these evil men who have denied Yahweh's opportunity to know him is it wrong for these people to cheer at their death see we'll be dealing with that for a while right these are the great things of scripture that mess with your mind and the reason is is because it teaches us how to think properly about evil evil is wrong 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 and the only way that you can rejoice and all the high-ranking officials of a pagan nation dying in a flood. The only way that you can rejoice about that is if you truly understand the depths and depravity and destruction of sin and have a cultivated love for righteousness. Are we really, yay, they died without going to heaven. Is that what we're rejoicing over? No, we're rejoicing over the fact that truth won that truth reigns, that Yahweh is superior. Yahweh pleads. Read Ezekiel 18 sometime. Yahweh pleads. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. He does not want anyone to die. We know that in the New Testament, right? He desires no one to die, but for all to come to faith in Christ. That's the heart of God. But when people have gone their own way long enough and have smacked God's hand away, you leave him with no other choice but judgment. Why? Because when the pathway out was provided, no, 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 no. Get away from me. Stop talking to me about that. I don't believe all that. That stuff's not true. Well, I don't think that's how it works. No. You have to think about it biblically. Verse 6, your right hand, O Yahweh, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath 
It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the hearts of the sea, in the heart of the sea. What is all of that? What is it? Well, it's a fact. Yeah, that's true. But is it who God is or what God has done? What Yahweh has done. Mark it down. I'm going to check everybody's homework for you allowed to leave. Counting off major for no exclamation points. Now here's a question. Look at verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Here's a question. Was it glorious in power before? Yeah, it was. In fact, notice by giving Yahweh this idea of your hand, the blast of your nostrils. That's just a weird description, but, but still, that whole idea. Notice that those are what's called anthropomorphisms. That is taking something that resembles human beings and attributing to God in order to make it a little bit more understandable so we can grasp the greatness of what has happened. It's not that God actually has a nose and he's doing that to everybody, trying to blow them away. That's not the idea, okay? So let's not go go out there, realize that the figure of speech that is being used. But here's the thing. He was glorious beforehand, was he not? So why would they sit here and say, whoa, surprise, that's why everybody looks weird. I'm looking out at you guys and you guys are going, yeah, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Does everybody get straightened up? I left church with neck problems today. Uh, Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Has become glorious in power. How should we understand that? Put yourself in their sandals. How should we understand that? It has become glorious. Let me ask you this. Did they fully believe that Yahweh had that degree of glory before? No, but he showed it to him, didn't he? Isn't that the way he works? You got a group of people that need to be rescued from a situation. You need to be rescued. I need to be rescued out of a situation. I don't know how it's going to work. And God steps in and does only God things as he can do in the situation. And you go, good grief. I read about this in the Psalms. I read about this in the praises of Scripture. But now he is showing me just exactly how he's got a hold of my life and how he can set these things up so that they come out for his glory. Notice it's God revealing himself in a situation. He's always been glorious. But man, he enjoys unfolding that for his kids to see all the time. Notice the next one here. Verse 9, this is a little bit different. It doesn't fall in the two categories, but, it, but it's interesting. This must be the bridge of the song, right? It says here, some of you music people will get that. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. What is that? Somebody say, what would you say? Say it again. Say it, what? Whining? bragging that's exactly what it is it's pride that's exactly what it is the egyptian said i will i will i will and my desire is to be satisfied on them now stop what were they out to do i mean were they just hey guys will you come back and mow my yard is that what they're doing my desire is to be satisfied on them satisfied how notice it's a bloodlust didn't they want to kill them Didn't they want to try to bring them back if they could and they were taken by force whatever it took We're going to re-enslave you again. So notice, the satisfaction is I will get my way. Notice, I will, I will, I will, I will. So notice, this whole thing right here, pride. Verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Which notice, uh, this right here, where'd it go? This right here in 5. Uh, goes down here with 10. Notice it connects together like that. Sorry. 5 and 10 connect together like that. So here's the thing. You blew with your wind. What is this? What Yahweh has done. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Among the who? The Elohim. Now why are they saying that? See, the reason why this has significance is because God just got done disarming every god that they dealt with and worshipped oh you worship Ra? (laughs) dark so dark you can feel it and so dark you can't move for three days that's how god disarms the gods of egypt so notice that has a lot of implications here as far as the ten plagues are concerned 
So notice, who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Now notice we've got this divided up here. This right here, who Yahweh is. Verse 11. The next one here, verse 12. What Yahweh has done. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Good stuff, right? And real quick, verse 13. You in your mercy have led forth. I'll be honest with you. I hate, I hate it that the New King James Version translated it this way. And I think the reason is is because the New American Standard got it right. See this word mercy? This is the word hesed. It's the idea of loving kindness or more properly defined your loyal love is the idea Yahweh's loyal love towards his people mercy is is a weak translation of that there's so much more to it you want a good study study the word loving kindness hesed it's the idea notice you in your loving kindness have led forth the people whom you have redeemed you have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation notice this what Yahweh has done. I'm trying to hurry here. Other side. Because this is interesting right here. Verse 14. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. Now, here's an interesting thing. Everybody see this right here? 14? No, you don't. (laughs) Hey, at least you're an honest group, right? Notice this. 16, the first line here, all the way up to the beginning in 14. All of this right here is the reaction of the nations. And reaction to what? To... What Yahweh has done. Everybody remember Rahab? We heard about what Yahweh did to Egypt. How much time had taken place? 40 years. Anybody frightened of anything from 40 years ago? I mean, think about it, an event that took place somewhere else and you're like, oh, I'm so scared of that. The people raising their hands are not even 40 years old. Stop that. Okay? <laughs> Trying to prove you wrong, preacher. So, verse 16 here. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Yahweh, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Yahweh, which your hands have established. What is all that? What he's done. Notice, it's just sitting down and spending time with the text. What has Yahweh done? And notice this last one here, verse 18. The Lord shall reign forever. What He will do. In fact, the one before too is actually what He will do. What He will do in the future. Worship consists of two facets, what he has done and what he will do. Take your Bibles, turn to Revelation 4. We'll finish here. Hey, man, you give me 55 minutes to preach, I'm going 56, right? I don't get any amens from that, so deal with that before the Lord in your own heart. Revelation chapter 4. Beautiful thing about chapter 4 is there is a transition in the book. And John finds himself with a vision before him. He's actually standing in the throne of throne room of Yahweh. And while I don't want to spend time going everything in this, because I, I, I love this book, but I want to show you the elements of worship so you can see how they line up. Verse 8, the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, what is the contents of holy 
high-ranking celestial beings before the throne of God himself. Watch what it says. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Let me ask you a question. Is that who God is or what he's done? It's who he is. Is he holy? Yes. Is he the Lord? Yes, he is. Is he almighty? Was he? Is he? Will he? Praise God. Notice it. Hey, if you're in line with how heaven's praising him, you know it's a good thing going on, right? Go down to verse 11. These are the 24 elders. I don't believe that this is the church. Chew on that one for a while. Verse 11. Worthy are you, O our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For, here's the reason why, you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Just who he is or what he's done. What he's done. Notice that. And the thing that they go back to is the very basic introduction of God in the revelation of Scripture I am the creator. Does everybody see that? Now, here's an amazing thing. You have a devotional time throughout the week. You want to sit down. Some of you like to read the Psalms a lot. I challenge you, sit down with the Psalm and look for who God is, what God has done. Those are the only acceptable elements of worship. We serve a great God. Everybody have fun with this? Thank you, God that you are great, that you are excellent, that you are almighty, that you alone provide salvation, that you alone rescue and save and our reflection upon how you work not just in declaring us righteous, taking away our guilt, adding to us righteousness, not just in that salvation, but Father, when you deliver us and rescue us and supply for us in daily life, it should elicit worship from us that is continual. Let us praise you for who you are and what you have done and reject all counterfeits that try to come to that standard. Thank you, God, that you let us worship you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.